Tonight, if you turn your Bibles again to Daniel chapter 11, as we continue our study here in the book of Daniel, we're, we're getting close to the end, folks. We're going to nearly finish up chapter 11, one more chapter, and then we'll be heading off to the book of Nehemiah here on Wednesday nights, and we'll be beginning the book of Ephesians uh, this coming Sunday. So I want to encourage you to be out for that. Uh, I am excited about both that are coming up, but I'm very excited about the book that we're still in. And so I want to encourage you. You know, I had a couple of interesting conversations this week, and I want to share the context, basically, of a couple of them with you. You know, sometimes people look at their Bibles and they look at it from a very specific doctrinal lens. In other words, they're, they're, you know, they were this uh, as a child or they were that as a child. And so they really have a tendency to look at some of these prophetic passages of Scripture from a doctrinal standpoint as opposed to just simply reading what it says and understanding what it says. And you get into a ton of trouble when you do that because most of what we're going to read tonight as we look at this tale of two princes, as it were, um, is in one sense been the course of wickedness in human history for a long, long time, but it pictures and gets very, very specific as we get to the middle of it, and then it shifts gears towards the end in this second prince that's going to come alongside to a person who's never been... Uh, in view in the course of human history. And so if you just simply rationalize it doctrinally and you, you know, take a particular bent like an amillennialist would, which is there's not going to be any tribulation, that uh, that's just simply the course of mankind throughout history and that there will be uh, wars and rumors of wars until the second coming of the Lord, then you're going to miss the actual meaning of the rest of this chapter. You will not see it, and you will walk right past it, and consequently you will look at your world, and this is where it gets important, um, from a very bent view, because this stuff bears on us today. It's not some ancient book that was written 2,600 years ago that has no meaning. It's not just simply talking about uh, a king that was uh, headquartered in modern-day Syria, who was one of the most evil people that ever walked the face of the earth, it is talking about a ruler ultimately that is yet to come, and you all know who he is. We call him the Antichrist, and he's spoken of in great depth. And I'm going to be sharing with you a lot of scripture. I want to encourage you to pull out a pen, grab a piece of note paper, and jot some of these things down and, and check them for yourselves, because you're going to see that there's no way to explain the second prince apart from there's somebody coming on the world scene that the world has never seen before. Jerry, can we turn off maybe these two outside? I'm like dying up here. That perfect. There. I can actually see you all now. It was like, wow, I have Shekinah now. I'm glowing. I, it was a glow. And so tonight, the tale of two princes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we again turn our full attention to your word, as we stop out of our busy day, as we take some time out of our evening, as we uh, gather together for the purpose of studying your word. We pray that your 
word would become alive to us. Lord, that it wouldn't be a, just a dead historical document, but Lord, it would be a picture, a prefigurement of the things that will occur. Uh, we believe in the not too distant future, and so God, may we draw from it both the historical and the prophetic tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it, and we pray that you'd instruct us through it. We ask all this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to pick up in verse 21 tonight. And I want to make a differentiation. When we were in these two chapters, I reminded you that these two guys are two different princes. So uh, when you get to Daniel chapter 8, when we were there, there was a little horn in that uh, chapter, and that little horn prefigured or was a type of the one who is the Antichrist. And when we were in chapter 7, we actually got a picture of the Antichrist, and now we get some details filled in. This is one of the great problems with interpreting the book of Daniel because it bounces back and forth between uh, that which was historical and that which is prophetic, and it does so in a way that keeps us guessing a little bit until you start looking at the details themselves. And so tonight we're going to be looking first at one of these two princes, and he is none other than Antiochus, uh, the fifth or the fourth, excuse me, Epiphanes, who uh, is the little horn that we found that we found back in chapter eight, um, lived and reigned, uh, reigned specifically from about 175 B.C. to 163 B.C., and so he had a, a span of about 12 or 13 years. He was part of the Seleucid dynasty. Uh, he lived in the area of Damascus. He was from Syria, but he was Greek. And so he is this little horn that's going to now be described for 15 verses, this very dedicated, detestable person uh, that when we look at it, we'll be able to see the historical timeline uh, quite quite clearly. And so um, as this guy comes on the scene, it kind of, ravages the land, if you will, of what we would call modern-day Palestine. And remember, as we saw last time, we had we had two kingdoms. Ultimately, the Grecian Empire and the Egyptian Empire boiled down to one king apiece, and so you had the Ptolemies who ruled in Egypt. You had the Seleucid king, specifically Antiochus, uh, in the north in Syria, and these two guys fought back and forth, and what they fought over was what we now know is the modern uh, area of Palestine, which includes, of course, all of Israel. It includes part of northern Egypt, part of Lebanon, part of Syria. And so they, in essence, battled. They traveled back and forth between this uh, area of the world. And so verse 21, we pick up again. And in his place, so now we're going to have these kings uh, that come to the end. Two dynasties, the Ptolemaic dynasty and the Seleucid dynasty, will come to an end, one with each. And it says, in his place shall arise a vile person. Please underline the word person. Because in the Hebrew language, which these last chapters were written in, as opposed to the Aramaic of the first seven chapters, uh, it is absolutely very clear that we're talking about a historical person. We're not talking about a type. Uh, we're talking about a person, a vile person, to whom they shall not give honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. As you look at the history of none other than Antiochus Epiphanes, you find that he actually had no legitimate claim uh, to the Seleucid throne. He actually, actually belonged to his nephew Demetrius. Demetrius was 
uh, in essence, pushed out of the way by Antiochus Epiphanes uh, through various political maneuverings and uh, very intriguing political things that he did. He ultimately ends up in power. He begins to flatter the rulers that surrounded him. He's aided primarily by his brother Attalus, and ultimately the king of then Syria, which is Eumenes, comes along and he says, you know what, it's yours. And so he comes into power exactly uh, as this says. And in verse 22 it goes on, And with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and will be broken, and is also the prince of the covenant. And so as we're looking at these 15 verses, I want you to look at two things. We're going to look at the history, and as I shared with you before, Google the guy's name, go to a trusted source like the Museum of World History in London or or any of the Egyptian museums that hold uh, the the Seleucid dynasty records in Greek. You can you can look at these guys in great detail. They were prolific in making sure that their conquests were well documented because they were basically prideful, arrogant, boastful, you know, guys that really wanted the world to know exactly how great they were. And so, thankfully, uh, we can compare the historical evidence to what is said here. And so it says, with the force of a flood. And as I shared with you before. This particular word that's translated flood, we would also translate flood having to do with water, but it also is translated as any flood of people or a flood of nations or a flood of humanity. And so it appears here that this person will bring with him a flood of humanity so that they should be swept away before him, speaking of this vile person, and be broken, and is also the prince of a covenant. So Antiochus routs the forces of Egypt. We saw that battle last time we gathered together. Um, those battles took place between Pacillium and the Carpathian Mountains, and so these guys gather together, and Egypt is fighting Syria. They're after each other, and basically Antiochus goes all the way to Egypt. He basically pushes every army out from in front of him. Uh, notice it says prince of the covenant here. Uh, it's interesting because... There is a prince known as the Prince of the Covenant, and he happens to be one of the Ptolemies. He happens to be the last Ptolemy. He was known as the Prince of the Covenant. And so it becomes very clear that this is none other than Antiochus making a covenant with the army that he just defeated by pushing them all the way back to Egypt uh, in about 180 or so B.C. And so they end up befriending each other. They end up joining forces. And now so you have this what verse 23 says, and after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. And so here you have king of the north defeats king of the south. King of the south makes a treaty, makes a covenant with him. Verse 23, and this is the history of Ptolemy Philometer and his allegiance with Antiochus Epiphanes. And so it says, a league shall be made with him. He'll act deceitfully, for he shall come up and be a strong person or a strong army with a small number of people. And so now he changes tactics. Interesting thing about history, you're going to find out that ultimately they fight a battle in Egypt. That battle takes place at the city of Memphis. Memphis was the center of the worship of of Karnak. Karnak, this, this god was supposed to be protecting it, an Egyptian god. And so Antiochus comes, and so it's the battle of the gods. You have the Egyptian gods against the Greek gods, and they are basically, here you have the Greek god, uh, who would be Zeus, and Zeus is now going to fight for Antiochus, and, 
and the sun god, Ra, in essence, would be the, the top god in the, in the Egyptian pantheon. And so they're going to fight each other, in essence, uh, in this battle. But it's not going to be a bunch of people. It's really going to be kind of like uh, we would call a black op. It would, it would be a small group of people that come in, and they try and defeat each other uh, in, in this city. And he ultimately ends up, Antiochus, that is, managing to have himself crowned as king. At that time, that would be the king of both Egypt and Syria. And so for a period of time, he's now ruling what, if you looked on a map today, and I'm sorry I don't have one up for you. My intent was to do that. I couldn't find a good one that we could blow up. But if you looked on a map of of the world today, of the Middle East, what you would find is the region basically from Damascus, Syria, all the way down to Cairo, Egypt. And now you have one guy that basically controls the whole thing. The interesting thing is he's not horribly powerful, but he is very politically attached to these various little regional rulers that are all over the place. And so he somehow manages to have himself uh, be made king. Verse 24, he goes on, and he shall enter peaceably. Now, of course, you would do that if you're the king, wouldn't you? You could kind of come and go wherever you want to go. And so he now begins to to change his colors a little bit, even unto the richest places of the province. And so uh, if you know a little bit about Egyptian history, basically along the coast of the Mediterranean lies the city of Alexandria. Alexandria was at one time the library of the world. It it holds to this day uh, one of the most massive collections of manuscript evidence uh, from about 2,000 years of world history. And so it was from there that the Septuagint authors uh, actually penned what we have as the Septuagint version uh, of the Old Testament. And so uh, this was a center of learning. And so Antiochus enters in peaceably, even in the richest places of the province, to do what his fathers had not done. Now, if you remember our history from last time, every one of the rulers before him never, ever made it all the way to Egypt and gained control. And so, again, you look at the historical data, we're talking about a person. And so, nor did his forefathers. So, all the way back to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great never actually conquered uh, the Egyptian Empire. He got to it, but he never conquered it. And so, for his forefathers didn't do it. He shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, and the riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. Interesting thing about the historical record that we have in Antiochus, he was actually, you know, we all love the story of Robin Hood. Whether it's the Disney version or the Kevin Costner version, we like Robin Hood because it's kind of, you can kind of get yourself in it. It's like, you know, I'm going to get stick it to the man. You know, it's finally somebody stands up for the little guy. Antiochus, because of the way he actually ends up being crowned king, and and he's now kind of this multinational ruler, do you get how it's starting to sound a whole lot like another guy? He will also be a multinational ruler. Matter of fact, he will be a world ruler. So you can see the type, and you can see the picture that's being painted that looks ahead, and you're going to see some details thrown in that gives us an understanding this is two different people. One of them has yet to come on the scene. So Antiochus comes on the scene, and in essence, he's kind of viewed as as an ancient Robin Hood. And as it says here, he was known, rather than being, you know, this guy that came in and destroyed everything like the Assyrians and the Babylonians typically did. They raised the cities, destroyed everything, basically left the world in a waste 
uh, as they left. Antiochus comes in, and he kind of does the more modern warfare. It's like, well, we beat you, so why don't you just join us? No, by the way, we'll actually promote some of your people. And so he keeps uh, the strong fortress there at uh, Pelesium uh, on the border of Egypt, and he just says, you know what, it's yours, you guys keep it, but I'm kind of the ruler. Verse 25 goes on with the picture of this uh, incredible power this guy has. And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. So now he goes back. He figures, ah, you know what? We're kind of not doing so well here. We maybe ought to actually mount a campaign. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great army and a mighty army. But he shall not stand, for he shall devise plans against him. And yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away and shall fall down slain. So now Antiochus makes a second expedition against Egypt's um, Sycon. Sycon, his father was Philometer. Philometer, basically, they join forces. They still can't mount enough. Uh, of an army to to defeat this guy. And so, again, you can see how you have a ruler that rules by political intrigue. That ruler then goes on to make political allegiances and alliances. Ultimately, as far as we know of the world at that time, he ruled the major portion of it. So you can kind of see how this guy prefigures or is a type of a guy who's yet to come, the Antichrist. And unfortunately, uh, Antiochus' army uh, was unsuccessful because of the, the treason that was within it. And so broken up in their own camp, and he goes back. And so verse 27 comes along. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. And so now you have two guys. They keep meeting in, the, in these exchanges. The exchanges are won by one guy every time, and it's Antiochus Epiphanes. And so he gains a name. These hearts shall be bent on evil. They shall speak lies at the same table. One of the interesting things about Antiochus and, and his campaigns as he fought against Egypt as, is he would go and fight with them. He would only fight to the extent that he needed to to gain an audience with whoever was the ruler. This is the historical record of his life. As soon as he did that, he would sit down across the table and he would lie to them. So, sure, we're going to be okay, and then he'd go out and kill everybody. Uh, he was an evil guy. Sound like anybody else you know? And so lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. And so now it's beginning to start to look towards the future. And so Sycon was proclaimed king in the south. Antiochus entered into an allegiance with him, doesn't go anywhere. Uh, they, they tried this thing of joint sovereignty, which has never worked in the course of human history. It didn't work then. And ultimately, that alliance falls apart. They try and serve as co-regents into Alexandria. And basically, even within family, they begin to fight. So verse 28, it goes on to say, And while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the Holy Covenant. Now we begin to see a shift. And this is important because it sets up the course of human history, some of which is yet to come. And so he's moved against the Holy Covenant, and he shall do damage and return to his own land. In 169 B.C., Antiochus returns from Egypt. He has all kinds of plunder, and he marches through which region of the world? None other than Judea. 
That's where he ends up. And as he goes through Judea, um, we pick up the story in the apocryphal book of Maccabees. So if you happen to have a Catholic Bible and has the apocrypha in it, you're going to find First and Second Maccabees in there. And you can look this up. There are copies of these books found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They are historically accurate. With regard to canonization, the reason that we don't accept them is there are a number of things in them um, that are not factual about God himself, but as far as the history that's contained within them, fairly accurate with what we know uh, today. And so there was an insurrection that was led by uh, a Jewish man named Jason. He took the opportunity uh, to try and stave off the attack of Antiochus, and Antiochus comes in now for the first time. He goes after the Jewish people, and he specifically goes after the temple in Jerusalem. And so this is where many people begin to get a little bit confused, and the lines are blurred. And at the appointed time, verse 29 says, He shall return and go towards the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. So it's not going to be like his little stealth black ops mission. It's not going to be like his major campaigns. It's not going to just simply be political intrigue. He is actually going to mount a third invasion against Egypt. Uh, it's not going to have the success of the previous ones because by now the Egyptians have figured out every time this guy comes down here, he sets us against each other. That is exactly what the Antichrist will do ultimately. He is going to set the entire world against itself. He will basically at first be a political leader who comes on the scene, solves massive world problems. I believe he will solve things like the war that goes on constantly in the Middle East. I believe he will solve the economic crisis globally. I believe ultimately he will come along and he will bridge the gap between all world religions, you know, because right now we have this huge ecumenical outcry. It's like, well, can't we all just get along? We need to coexist, you know. We're Muslim Buddhist Catholics or whatever. You know, you just you just got to blend everything together and we just all hug and we'll gather around and sing kubaya off and the whole world will be good. Antiochus is the first guy to actually kind of try and do that. He's figured out, hey, now the Ptolemy brothers have gotten together. Their army's stronger than mine. I need to try a new tactic. And so he doesn't have the success. Verse 30, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him, and therefore he shall be grieved. He has not had to fight a battle where he has been attacked from the sea previously. So this is the first naval engagement for Antiochus Epiphanes. And so what happens with him is he will be returning in rage against the Holy Covenant because he's going to get, he's going to get whooped. And here's what happens. Again, if you look at the map at that end of the Mediterranean, there is a long sweeping coastline that takes up several countries, Egypt in the south, you have the Gaza Strip, then you have Israel, then you have parts of Lebanon all the way up into Turkey. And if you look at that region of the world, the way you would have to cut somebody off and isolate them is from the sea. That's the only way to do it because it is flatter than a pancake along the coast. And so anybody that's out there could see your army coming, you could see their army coming, but what you couldn't do is keep from being cut off either by being flanked from the north or the south or directly flanked from what would be the west. And so 
Uh, that's exactly what happens. The two Ptolemies now get together. They seek the aid of the Romans. Guess where the Romans are? They're out in the Mediterranean. They come across the Mediterranean in seas. Uh, they, they take that part that we would call the Yishak Shatim, and it's what Cyprus is today on a modern map. And they attack and actually lay siege to Antiochus at Alexandria. When the ships are within a few miles of that city, Antiochus, in a feigned attempt to gain their support, goes out and he actually salutes the Roman ships. Didn't work out too well for him because uh, the, the Roman commander uh, goes and delivers Antiochus letters from the Roman Senate saying, hey, guess what? You are now not the big guy on the, on the map anymore. Uh, we're taken over. We want to impress upon this area Pax Romana. So you can either surrender or you're going to provoke an attack of Rome. And so now Rome is involved. Uh, at that, Antiochus ceases his aggression. He figures, okay, this is crazy. I'm not going to go against Rome. It was one thing to fight Egypt. Uh, he loses heart. Uh, he reluctantly ends up accepting the Senate's demand to discontinue the aggression. So Antiochus turns his attention specifically on Jerusalem. He feels that he's been betrayed, if not by the Jews' God, by the Jews themselves. He, goes, he, he does unbelievable atrocities to the Jewish people. He ultimately slaughters over 40,000 of them. And this is where the story picks up. He actually goes into the temple. He steals all the temple artifacts. He actually slaughters a pig in the name of Zeus on the altar inside of the temple, therefore defiling it. So we come to verse 31. And the forces shall be mustered by him. They shall defile the sanctuary fortress. So this is the temple mount itself. Uh, they shall take away the daily sacrifices. And in that place, there is abomination of desolation. And so in your history books, you will find out that Antiochus Epiphanes just goes full on war against the Jewish people, ultimately wiping out or enslaving most of them. He goes in, does this detestable thing. This, this is the, imagine, okay, everyone knows we don't particularly keep this view because we happen to be saved by grace. Thank you, Jesus. And uh, we occasionally eat some pork. We like bacon. We cook hams for Christmas. But for the Jewish people, there would not be much more that you could do that was more detestable than to take the most unclean of all the animals and sacrifice it on the altar that was supposed to be holy unto the Lord. It's about as bad as things get spiritually as far as they're concerned. That's exactly what Antiochus does. The armed forces of Antiochus stand guard on the temple. Regular worship is discontinued. The Sabbath day is canceled. The city is attacked. Women and children are captured. Multitudes are slain. His, his occupying army actually takes up roughly the position that now is occupied by the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so they stay on the Temple Mount, just directly adjacent what would have been at that time Herod's Temple, and or Solomon's Temple, excuse me. And, and he's sitting there looking at it, and, you know, going, hey, look at what I got. And so to the Jewish people, this is the abomination of desolation. He actually inscribes, uh, erects an image of Zeus in, on the temple, Temple's burnt offering altar, and as far as the Jewish people are concerned, this is, this is as bad as it gets. And so verse 32, now notice 
from that point as we look forward. And those who do wickedly against the covenant shall corrupt with flattery. But the people will know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And so in verse 32, it begins to shift and it's going to be moving away from Antiochus Epiphanes and towards the one who will come after him, who will everything that he did, this guy's going to do on a world stage. Some of the Jews demand to be set free. It's not going to happen. Basically, uh, if you've ever heard of the Maccabean revolt, revolt, this is when it happens. So the fortress at Masada is occupied by the Jewish people. Ultimately, they stay there, and rather than being taken captive, they choose, in essence, mass suicide. And so that's history as we know it up to that point. Verse 33, those people who understand shall instruct many, and yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame and by captivity and plundering. And now when they fall, they shall be aided with little help. Nobody cared about the Jews. This is where it starts to fade into what is still yet future. What's the world's position on the Jewish people? Nobody cares about the Jews. The Jewish people, just Israel just had their national elections. The results are actually still up in the air, so much so that they may have to have another election. Benjamin Netanyahu has won yet once again another term in office, but now rather than having two parties, basically in the Knesset, there's three. There's, there's no way for anybody to get anything done. Uh, the world doesn't care. The, world, the world's thinking, hey, we might get a peace agreement. We might actually be able to bring about uh, what the U.N. hasn't been able to accomplish for quite some time. And so, but many shall join with them by intrigue, and some of those of understanding shall fall and refine them and purify them and make them white. And until, notice it, underline it, here's the shift, until the time of the end, because it is still appointed for the end time. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. So it goes from Antiochus Epiphanes and what he does in the temple and what happens to the Jewish people to the standing of the Jewish people up into today and into the future, so far as, so far as the future will go. And so those who remain true to God are refused to eat the unclean things. They died for their faith. And so this is the beginning of the picture of the tribulation. Because that is exactly what will happen during the tribulation. You and I are going to be walking hand in hand in a field someplace and checking out the sunset and zip out of here. Gone. History. No longer walking on the earth. But there are going to be people who will know exactly what we just said. What your Bible clearly states. They will have read the book of Revelation. They will be, you know... They are Tim LaHaye fans, and they read the whole Left Behind series. They got all 12 books or whatever there are. There's like 10 or 12 of them. They read all of them. And, and they're going to know, uh-oh, this is bad. This is not good. Millions of people just disappeared from the face of the earth. We do not know where they go, uh, where they went. It doesn't look like a mass suicide. doesn't really look like a disease event. E.T. did not come calling, but they left. Okay, They're not here anymore. And they're all frantically grabbing Bibles because there are, there's probably a billion or more Bibles actually on the earth right now. Some estimates as high as two. But let's just say there's one billion. 
Let's say there's a billion Christians, they disappeared. There's still going to be plenty of Bibles to go around. People are going to be going, well, what did it say? Oh, yeah, that's right, chapter 6 of the book. How come the church isn't mentioned anymore here in the rest of this book? And then it ends with, ooh, this gnarly battle. You, you see, they're going to then actually really die for their faith, but it's going to be way worse than if this 40,000 or so Jews that perished during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, I believe that that term in verse 34 actually refers to the apostasy, um, but it, it is kind of right between those Jews that fell by the sword and those who will fall because of the apostasy of the times who will actually lapse over into the great tribulation, who will be going, you know, hey, you've been saying the Lord's going to come back for 2,500 years now, you know, whenever it happens. You've been saying that this Jesus guy is going to come back. And we haven't seen him. Where is he? And I think many people today are right on the cusp of that very thing. And so... Now we shift gears. I want to give you just a, a little a little look so you can look back. And if you go through and pick out all of the things that describe Antiochus Epiphanes in chapter 8, you're going to find he's a stern-faced king. He's a master of intrigue. He's very strong, but not by his own power. He causes astounding devastation. He's successful at whatever he does. He's a destroyer of mighty men and of holy people. He's a successful promoter of deceit. He's the one that considers himself superior. He takes a stand against all the princes of the earth. He's destroyed, but not by human power. He's contemptible. He has military success. All of these things we can see in chapters 11 and 8. Now the next prince. His definitions are very different. And so pick up now in verse 36. And then notice it says, and it's a proper translation, the king shall do according to his will. Has there ever been anybody in the course of human history about whom that can actually be said? The answer is no. Not even Hitler. Not Pol Pot. Not Mao. Nobody has ever actually fully been able to do whatever they wanted to do. Gotten close. The tense in the Hebrew here is, this guy has ultimate power, complete authority, and literally globally, whatever he does, he will be able to do. Whatever he decides, it will happen. And then the king shall do according to his own will, and he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, small g. In other words, every religious system that the world has at the time this guy comes on the scene, he will do whatever he wants to do, and he will actually be above all the gods, little g. So when you talk about this person who is now being pronounced as the next prince, this guy's going to have a lot greater impact than Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes wreaked havoc on the Middle East, but he couldn't even defeat Rome. And so he never did all that he wanted. And in fact, if it weren't for his lies, deceit, and the other things he did, he wouldn't have been able to do the things that he did. And shall speak blasphemies against, notice this, very important, underlined it, the God of gods. The literal rendering of that is God Almighty. In other words, he will blaspheme God himself. He's not going to blaspheme the Jews. 
He's not going to blaspheme another king. He's not going to blaspheme a government. His reign will actually be focused against God himself. He will be the most godless person who's ever been on the face of the earth. And he is going to be a person. She'll speak blasphemies against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. And notice the word wrath there. The word that's translated wrath is used only, excuse me, but only for the wrath of God. And so he's going to have the capacity to bring down on this earth what we would determine to be something that's extraordinary and beyond the capability of the world's militaries. Think on that one for a moment. It's not just destruction. It's not just mayhem. It is not military might. It's not death. It's not pillaging. It's not any of those things. The word that's used describes something that up to, so far as we know, only God or someone very close to him could do because it's beyond the world's capacity to wage this type of wrath. And so he says, shall prosper till the wrath has been, notice this, accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. In other words, these things that are being talked about are actually the plans of God. And this is where you can look at your Bibles, specifically at the book of Revelation, very specifically from chapter 6 to chapter 19, and you can say, God has purposed and told us in advance that there will be a time of massive outpouring of his wrath on the earth, and it has a very specific beginning, which begins at the rapture of the church, the battle of Gog, Magog, and it ends at the second coming of the Lord. So there's this window, this period of time, that what God has determined, notice he rages against God Almighty himself. He's not just against the government, but he's against God. He's against God, God's people, and everything that the real one and true God stands for. That shall be determined, those things shall be done. He shall, shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor for the desire of women. This is where we have had those wild... Uh, conjurings of who this person might be, that he might in fact maybe even be uh, a homosexual, because it appears that this person is going to come on the scene and he'll have absolutely no desire for women. That would be the first time in human history that a guy with that kind of power had no desire for female companionship. And so uh, one of the downfalls very often of great world rulers has been uh, the fact that, that ultimately they get involved uh, with with a woman, that woman actually becomes the downfall of that of that guy because they look at it and go, hey, we can't keep doing this. And so regard neither God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor of any god. In other words, he's not going to be part of any religious system. He's not. He's going to he's going to cut some new cloth here. And he shall exalt himself above them all. Now notice, he has no regard for the God of gods. He has no regard for God Almighty. He has no regard for the gods of this age, the gods of this world. People worship all kinds of different gods. He's got no regard for any of them. He exalts himself, this one person, above everything else. So this guy is a world ruler. He is a world religious ruler. And he will have and wield immense political power as well as monetary power. He will literally control the entire world. And so, but in their place, he shall honor the God of fortresses 
and a God which his, his fathers did not know he shall honor, with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. And thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God. Guess who that foreign God is? No, no, you know him. Uh, he, he's known as, uh, by a number of different names, the king of Tyre. He's known as the serpent, none other than Satan himself. Honor the God of fortresses, God which his fathers did not know. In other words, even they actually worshipped the, the pantheon of gods. Those who have come before have kind of created their own little world. And so whether it was the Roman gods, you know, maybe it was, maybe it was a Greek god, maybe it was an Egyptian god, he's not going to honor any of them. He's going to have his own god. And his own god is going to be the one and the only, our enemy, our foe. Fortresses with a foreign god which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. In other words, he's going to advance the glory of exactly one god. That god will be none other than Satan himself. And he shall cease to rule, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide their land for gain. So again, the picture is, and you can get this from the book of Joel, that the actual real issue has been, remains to this day, that little sliver of land that Israel now occupies that is wedged between the king of the north and the king of the south that was boxed in by the Romans when they came from the Mediterranean Sea. And when you look at it, that is still the land that is contested to this day. Most hotly contested real estate on the face of the earth. Going to remain that way until the end. And so this willful king, Satan's main man, if you will, and it goes all the way back, and I want to kind of condense this down for sake of time tonight, but if you look at Genesis 3.15, it's interesting that there is the serpent's seed. Guess who that guy is? Same guy. The serpent does actually have kind of his son, if you will. It's the Antichrist. He's the one who comes, and he's on the world scene, and he does his father's bidding, basically. Uh, he's the wicked man of Psalm 10. He's the Assyrian, uh, the mighty Assyrian of Isaiah 10. He's the king of Babylon of Isaiah 14. He's the oppressor and the aggressor of Isaiah 16. He is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. He's the profane king of Daniel chapter 7. He's the stern-faced king of Daniel chapter uh, 8. He's the coming prince in Daniel chapter 9. He is the worthless shepherd of Zechariah chapter 11. He is the one who comes in his own name, according to the Gospel of John. He is the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He is none other than the Antichrist of 1 John chapter 2. He is the beast of the book of Revelation. It's all the same guy. And throughout history, what we've had is people who kind of look like that. And that's why people get confused. Oh, you know, it was Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, people said that about Adolf Hitler. People have said that about Muammar Gaddafi. People have said that about uh, Leonid Brezhnev. They, you know, I mean, there's been so many people. Oh, he's the Antichrist. The problem is, is the scope of what the Antichrist does, which we get a little glimmer here. We are told a ton about the Antichrist in Scripture. And we could spend about two, three hours just going over all these things in detail. But I want to give you just an overview. You can go back and look at these things. First, this willful king, let's look at his personality, because it's very important as we get close to the time when this guy might come on the scene and we might vacate the earth, 
and leave it to that period of time that God will deal with the nation Israel and draw them together so that all Israel will be saved. That's the point of the tribulation, is to bring Israel into view so that they can receive their Messiah, so that they can finally do what they rejected when Jesus came into Jerusalem. He said, I would to gather you as little children, little chicks, but you wouldn't come. You rejected the king. So they said, no, we said yes by grace. So for all this time, uh, the last 2,000 years, people have been giving their lives to Christ and by grace being adopted into the family of God. But God still has a plan for the nation Israel. We're told some things about his personality. In Daniel chapter 7, we saw that he was a great orator. In other words, he had a tremendous command of, of, of the language of the day. The world is looking for someone to come along. Isn't it interesting how we will vote for presidents who can speak well but have no substance whatsoever? It's true of human history. We just want somebody that speaks good and looks good. You know that one of the things, one of the raps on John McCain was he was too short. The rap on Chris Christie is he's too fat. You know, we've got, we, we want, you know, this presidential orator. The Antichrist will be that. Revelation chapter 13 says he will speak with regal authority. Daniel chapter 8, there in verse 23, said he will have a very high degree of philosophical distinction and he will traffic in, decep- in deception. In other words, he's going to be a bright guy. This guy's not going to be, you know, some guy from Podunk. He's not going to, well, you know, man, I don't know. They're not going to be doing surf lingo. This guy's going to, he's going to be speak and speak, okay? He's clever. He's going to be a persistent politician, according to Daniel chapter 8. He will be a deceiver who will use a false religious system to gain power. This is an interesting thing, because the world right now is looking at every world religion to some degree as a liability for humanity. That is the world's current position on religion in general. Forget biblical Christianity. We are the real problem as far as they're concerned, but all religions are problematic. So what do you think happens if, according to Revelation 13, a guy comes on the scene who can bind together all of the world's religions? Just like, whoa, don't we worship the same God? Aren't we hearing that drum being beat right now? You know, we all actually believe in the same God. You know, we just believe a little differently. No, my Bible says that there is one way, one truth, one life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. Biblical Christianity is not compatible with any other world religion. You cannot blend them. And and as narrow as that sounds, that's what your Bible declares. There is no such thing as someone who professes to be a practitioner of, of Hinduism and who is also a Christian. There is no such thing as a Muslim who is also a Christian. There is no such thing as an animist who is also a Christian. You are either identified in Christ, and your identity is solely in Christ, by grace, through faith, or you are not saved. Period. As as horrible as that sounds to the person who wants to be inclusive, who wants to be pluralistic, who would like to believe that everybody really is on the same path, we just get there differently. Your Bible is the most divisive piece of literature ever in human history because it divides between sheep and goats and saints and ain'ts. Amen? 
You're either one or the other. You don't have a choice. You can't blend the two. They are not blendable. Islam, for one, says that God has no son. Your Bible says God has a son, only one son, and he is the only way of salvation. So automatically, 1.76 billion people who practice Islam do not have faith in Jesus Christ, even if they believe he's a great prophet. This guy is going to blend all that. He's going to be a military genius, according to Revelation chapter 6. He's going to be different from other men. Daniel chapter 7, uh, Revelation chapter 13. He's going to be of a new order. He's just going to be one of those guys the whole world's going to go, man, how long we have waited for you. Highly intelligent, according to Daniel chapter 7. He is also at the same time going to be the perfection of unholiness. And this I want to take just a moment to talk about. Where's our world going? It is insane how unholy our world is getting. When you look at the world right now, it, 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 you, would, you would think, man, it can't get any worse. But what happens if you have a persuasive world ruler who comes on the scene, who blends together all the world's religions to where everybody's going, oh, yeah, well, he's right, and we're all, you know, we've just missed it all these years. And, oh, by the way, you know, it's okay to be a homosexual. It's okay to be a fornicator. It's okay to listen to Lisa Ling as she spouts her garbage on TV and says, you know, I don't really think that people were intended to be monogamous. You know, man, I think, you know, we just need to broaden our horizons a bit. This guy is going to be able to convince people that those things are true. And we're getting real close to wanting to hear that tidbit of information. And the world's being prepped for it right now. Watch TV and you're going to go, did not just say that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, I did. And the problem is, 15, 20 years ago, you probably could have gone to jail. Forty years ago, you would have for sure gone to jail. Fifty years ago, you wouldn't even have got it on TV. You'd have gone to jail before it made the airwaves. Not this guy. He's going to be the perfection of unholiness. He's going to be able to convince the world that he's right. He's going to be a man who's going to look more imposing than all the other world rulers. He's going to have that public persona of just invincibility, according to Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13. He will be literally, according to Revelation 13, the last wonder of the world, if you will. Because he is going to come from the world. He's going to rule the world. There will be a point in time when we are going to have a world ruler. Antiochus Epiphanes did not rule the world. He ruled a little tiny chunk of it. And in fact, when he ruled that, actually Rome was really the power of the world. And so they can't be the same person. Second thing, the moral character. He's the personification of selfish ambition here, according to Daniel chapter 11. He wants to exalt himself. Notice what we just saw above all other gods. He doesn't want to just rule the world. He wants to rule our spiritual world as well. And so he's not just going to be a world political ruler. He is going to be a world spiritual ruler. Right now in our country, as messed up as it is, there would be giant outcry against that because we have this supposed, that is not in the Constitution, by the way, separation of church and state. That separation was not intended to be as it is. It was to keep the state from absorbing religion. But this guy's actually going to do it. He's going to blend them together to where everybody's going, yeah, we want a theocracy. We want this guy to rule. He's going to be an absolute dictator. 
according to Daniel 11. He's going to be a blasphemer of God, according to Daniel 11. He is going to be the greatest antinomian, and all that means is this. I'll give you a new word for tonight in case you don't know what antinomian is. He will be the greatest rejecter of God that has ever lived on the face of the earth. He will just outright reject everything that has to do with Yahweh, Jehovah God, God Almighty, the one who rules from heaven. Nothing to do with him. He will convince the world that we should not even believe in him. He's going to be the rejecter of all world religions. He's going to be an egotist. He's going to be a materialist. He's going to be a worshiper of military power. And he is going to be and be able to be a rewarder of those who serve him. And when you start hearing these things, realize what we just saw, what we learned from the book of Revelation, what we learned from the book of Zechariah, and what we learned from the book of Second Thessalonians. We put this, this picture together. This guy is going to be an incredible world ruler. He will do things that nobody ever in the course of human history has ever done. As to the origin of him, he's going to have his origin uh, out of the prosperous, revived Roman Empire. Okay, that empire is not exactly prosperous today, but it's getting there. And it would not take much for it to do so, according to Revelation chapter 17. His political origin will come also from that empire, we're told in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, his national origin, I believe, will be something that we would uh, call akin to Roman, but I don't believe it'll be Roman. I believe it will be out of that uh, Eastern European Union uh, the, that area of the world that right now is the EU. His, his racial origin, I believe, uh, may well be Jewish. And so you may have somebody that appeals to virtually everybody. Daniel chapter 11 gives that. John chapter 5 kind of gives that. Uh, there, there's, it's going to be very hard for him to pull off what apparently he can do unless he's able to convince the Jewish people to go along with them. And I don't believe that the Jewish people being in the land will ever do that unless this guy at least is half Jewish. He may well be Jewish. So, though he'll come out of probably Europe. His origin will actually be Satan, according to Revelation 13. And his providential origin, this is going to freak some of you out, is going to be guess who? God. He's ordained of God. No two ways about it. He's going to come on the world scene because God has allowed it, purposed it, and told you about it in advance. So when he comes, because the church is going to be gone, remember the situation here. Church isn't going to be here. What does your Bible say? Lest those days would be shortened, none would survive. So what does God do? God brings on the scene someone capable of bringing all of this to fruition in a short period of time. I believe that ultimately, though he'll be empowered by Satan, I believe that God will actually bring him to fruition and bring him into view so that he can do what it is that he's been called to do, and then God will take him out. He will rise to power. It's going to be the product of iniquity. We could just go on and on. I mean, this is crazy stuff. Read Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 17. You're going to see this guy who comes as part of the birth pains of a new world order, a new world empire uh, that you get a little glimpse of here in chapter 11. 
Chapter 17 of the book of Revelation says, Then the beast, that would be the Antichrist, and the ten horns that you saw will hate the prostitute. In other words, the world religion that kind of came up and that, that has kind of been co-ruling and all these things are going on, there's going to be war. I'll bring her to ruin, they'll leave her naked, they'll eat her flesh, they'll burn her with fire, for God has put in their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast power to rule. That's what it says. God's going to remember, God can harden hearts, amen? He did that with Pharaoh, didn't he? He said, you want it, you got it, you go for it. God eventually is going to shorten those days. He's going to cause the Antichrist to have a rule of peace and then a rule of chaos, and he's got it blocked in by Daniel's, guess what, last week. That missing chunk of time, that 70th seven, that period that we know is the tribulation of days. Until God's words are, Revelation 17, verse 17 says, fulfilled. And so Satan's goal from the beginning has been to thwart God, has it not? There's going to be a period of time where it's going to look like that's actually going to happen. His man, the Antichrist, will rise on the scene. He will be this incredible world ruler. He will be a political ruler. He'll be a religious ruler. He'll be a ruler in the banking world. He will be the ruler. He will set himself up at that point in time. What do you think would happen if somebody, for instance, came on the world scene right now and could solve the world monetary problem, could solve the world religious divide, could at the same time uh, solve the, the political problems that divide us? What do you think would happen? I would say to you that guy would become very powerful virtually overnight. That's exactly what the Antichrist will one day do. I believe there's a possibility that he might even be alive on earth today, and we don't know who he is. Don't know. But I know this. Trumpet's going to sound, the dead in Christ are going to rise, and we who are alive and remain will meet him in the air. And when the really bad stuff begins to happen, and when he actually comes on the scene in his fullness and is made known, um, you and I are going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb for which I am eternally grateful, because I really don't want to go through the tribulation, quite frankly. I mean, I know some people think we should. I actually agree with that premise. I deserve it. I should go through the tribulation. But praise God for grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have beforehand told us what to be looking for in these very last days. And God, the world is ripe for a political ruler of this caliber, of this type one who would come on the scene and solve these things that uh, so easily uh, can be viewed in a, in a global way. God, we, we're, we're a wreck financially, globally. Religiously, the world is just crying out for somebody to step on the scene and unite all faiths. God, we need a, a monetary system that's, that's governed from one central location, all this fluctuation. And God, your word declares to us we know who this person is. We don't know when he's coming. We don't know his name. But we know a lot about him. And we pray that because we do, as we see the world situation uh, metamorphose over these next weeks, months, maybe years, God, that you cause us to be busy with the message of the gospel of grace. 
Lord, that through Jesus Christ all men can be saved. That those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Father, I pray there's anyone here tonight who's never made that public profession of faith, that they wouldn't exit this building without doing that that is most important, which is to know him and the power of his resurrection. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We bless you as your people. Thanks for giving us a preview, Lord, of what lies ahead so that we might be wise and redeem the time. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.